This week's Behind the Idea goes back to General Motors for a second look. We spoke with Blue Pacific, the author of a compelling, bearish piece of research about the company. We asked him what was at stake for GM right now. Looking forward from here, you don't need much of a drop in pickup truck sales to really start to erode the cash flows of these companies. Then we asked about the company's cruise division, and Blue Pacific pointed out some curious trends. Are we really to believe that Cruise is coming across 40 times more bad drivers than Waymo? Or is there, are there other issues or questions that need to be further looked into? We then spoke to Phoebe Wall-Howard of the Detroit Free Press, who reminded us why GM's Cruise has a strong reputation. Unlike Tesla, that has so much brilliance and so many talented engineers, they also have a lot of turnover. And what General Motors doesn't have is turnover. And so they have this incredible institutional knowledge, and that's what they're building on, and that's what everyone is watching with General Motors. The past hasn't been great, the present cycle might not last, and the future is uncertain and maybe far away. Is there hope for GM given all this, and does the problem affect the industry as a whole? We'll get into it on this week's Behind the Idea. Just a quick note before we get started. Nothing on this podcast is meant as investment advice of any sort. I am long Ford, ticker symbol F. Blue Pacific is long Fiat Chrysler, ticker symbol FCA. Nobody else on the pod has any positions in any stock's name. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. We're following up on GM with Seeking Alpha author Blue Pacific, whose research on the company suggested there are hard times ahead for the automaker. We're excited to follow up with him on his thesis and to see where GM and the auto industry might be headed. Welcome on, Blue Pacific. Thank you. So just to kind of hit the thesis, the, the takeaway we got, or at least I got from your thesis, is that it's a tough market right now. It's not necessarily a great time for automakers anyhow, but the company is also making things harder on theirs, on themselves, whether it's with the share buyback or whatever other capital allocation, whatever other steps management might take to kind of stem the or deal with the cycle better. Is that the right takeaway from your research? Well, I, I think the big picture is the, uh, the auto industry is a hyper-competitive, extremely capital-intensive industry, and the product is very cyclical because it has a long life and it's a very high-ticket price item. So that makes it an extremely difficult business to manage. What, what makes General Motors uh, somewhat unique amongst all of the automakers and then also amongst, uh, more importantly, the category of the truck makers, of which in North America, there's really three. You've got Ford with the F-150, Fiat with the Ram, and General Motors, which has the Chevrolet Silverado and the GMC Sierra. And fourth place with a high single-digit market share would be Toyota, their Tundra. So the, the truck manufacturers... Uh, have always enjoyed higher pricing and better margins than the rest of them. Uh, but at the end of the day, trucks are cyclical and the pricing power comes and goes throughout cycles, just as they do in the rest of the auto industry. So to that extent, you know, Ford, Fiat and General Motors are 
somewhat different than the rest of all the participants in the auto industry because they most of their earnings, especially currently, come from the full-size pickup truck market in North America. And then going from there, you know, why, where I think General Motors, to some degree, deserves to be called out is, you know, over the last five years or so, you know, they've had a new management team come in, and they've been very aggressive about trying to present themselves to shareholders as a very shareholder-friendly company that's forward-looking, and they've engaged in a significant amount of share repurchases. And where we stand today is, you know, General Motors, when you include the pension deficits, which all three of the companies have, uh, General Motors is the only one with kind of a significant net debt position now because Ford and Fiat have used the positive cash flows from the cycle over the last five or six years to bolster their balance sheets while General Motors wanted to be viewed as shareholder friendly and they bought back stock. So now where we stand, we, we've got truck sales, pickup truck sales, which are, you know, the lion's share of the cash flows for all of these companies. And pickup truck sales are, are really at, at levels as high as they've ever been in the past. And looking forward from here, you don't need much of a drop in pickup truck sales to really start to erode the cash flows of these companies because the operating leverage in auto manufacturing is so extreme that really, I mean, a 5 to 6% drop in pickup truck sales, which still has units volumes well above mid-cycle levels, you know, would really bring the cash flows close to zero to negative pretty quickly. And when you don't have, when you're, when you're in the net debt position that General Motors is in now, you know, that can be bad. That can get bad pretty quickly if things don't improve within a year or two. So that's why I think they, they've kind of put themselves in a dangerous situation. So uh, how bad could it get? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that, I mean, we looked at auto sales have already kind of come down from peak a little bit. You're saying pickup trucks haven't yet, but that's, so that might be bolstering numbers for now, but if that starts to go, it's not, we don't have to stretch far in our memory to think about how bad things get for GM. Is this a similar, ha, has GM learned anything? Is GM in any sort of better protection from what might happen? Or like, what are you sort of, what do you think is in the range of possibilities here? Well, I, I what's interesting is after the financial crisis and after General Motors and Chrysler went bankrupt and, you know, Ford was on the brink, they were all able to significantly restructure their labor force. And they were also able to get flexible work schedules with the labor unions. You know, similar arrangements have actually fared very well for other large industrial equipment manufacturers like Deer and Caterpillar. What's different with GM, Ford and Chrysler, Fiat is in the case of Deer and uh, Caterpillar, they don't have a lot of competition and they do enjoy some sustainable pricing power, or they have so far anyway, because the markets are, you know, in, in by and large duopolies for those guys. Uh, I'm less familiar with Caterpillar, but for Deer, it's a duopoly. With the pickup truck guys and all the auto guys, because it's more competitive, we consistently through cycles see price erosion occur when volumes drop. You know, it hasn't happened yet this cycle, but the pickup truck market in 06 and 07 got overbuilt. And remember, this is before the financial crisis, which really hit in 2008. 
but you started to have price erosion in pickup trucks in 06. So you, you don't need much to go wrong from here to have cash flows really start to get eroded. And they're already struggling in cars and crossovers as pricing's gotten hit very hard in the last three to four years there. Do you have a downside buying price target for GM or do you think it's uninvestable or what is there? Yeah, just my question is just, is there a level where you would find GM shares attractive? Not not at this point in time. It, it would depend on, we'd have to see how bad things got when the cycle changes. And we, we can kind of model that already because they tell us their contribution profit margins from each of their three segments, cars, trucks, and crossovers. Uh, then you can build sensitivity tables and see you know, how much does pricing and volumes have to fall to really start to hit cash flow. And you know, for example, in 2018, they've guided to $4 billion of free cash flow. $2 billion of that comes from their China joint venture, which is also now under pressure. So that means the rest of all of General Motors in 2018 is going to generate $2 billion of free cash flow. Then if you go over to the truck business, which is really what's generating all of the free cash flow, they manufacture, you know, call it one and a half million to 1.6 million trucks per year. Uh, that includes the big SUVs like the, the Yukon and the Suburban and of course all the work trucks. So you can take that 1.5 to 1.6 million units. You can estimate in a, an average selling price of 35 to 40 grand. Uh, and then you can come up with the revenue contribution and you're around 65 billion, which, you know, I think that's within the range of most sell side analysts. Uh, and from there you can, you can just sensitize it and say, okay, what happens if volumes fall 5%? What happens if pricing falls 2%, 3%? And you only need a, a volume drop of a couple of percent and a price drop of one or 2%. And all of a sudden there's no more cash flow left in North America. And all of your cash flow is now coming from China, which, by the way, in the third quarter of this year just started to really decline. And uh, the third quarter for General Motors in China was down 15%. So you know, they, these guys all after the restructuring, they all said, oh, we will be break even at a, a seasonally adjusted annual rate of, seven, or of 10 to 11 million units per year in North America. So that gave everybody hope that the segment's finally investable because all everybody restructured their operations. And so we are at a SAR of 16 to 17 million, SAR being seasonal adjusted annual rate of auto sales in North America. We're at a, a healthy level of 16 to 17 million. Gosh, the industry would really have to get killed for these guys to get hurt because they restructured their operations. Well, the problem is everybody restructured. Everybody across the industry did. And they all did the exact same thing. So even though we have SAR at the 16 to 17 million level, we're already seeing, you know, Ford barely generating any cash. General Motors, they're going to generate 2 billion maybe this year. It's down from over 5 billion or something two years ago. And you just need a small drop in truck prices or truck volumes to eliminate the cash flow altogether. And you would still be at a 15 plus million SAR rate, and these guys would not make money. So that just kind of speaks to the competitive nature and capital intensity of the industry. It's just a very, very tough business. Yeah. So 
We're talking a lot about cycle here. I'm also interested in your long-term take on automakers and GM. How do you think about a long-term valuation over the course of several cycles? Because I that's something I struggle with, you know, is is sort of a six or seven EV EBITDA multiple over a long-term figure of earnings appropriate? Or are these things sort of always just doomed to struggle with basic financing? What do you think over sort of a longer time horizon about the the business? You know, setting aside automotive 2.0 and the the future of potentially having autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, self-driving cars, and whatever, if you just kind of look at the auto business in and of itself, it's not really a growth industry. So it's really only worth the capital you can extract out of it while it's operating. So to that extent, I mean, the question is, does it go bankrupt again in a down cycle? And if it does, do you lose all your money? And if yes, then it's only worth some discount on the dividends it pays in the interim. So in the case of General Motors, you know, I leave it to listeners to model it for themselves. But uh, if you modeled, if you kept car and truck pricing where they are, or I'm sorry, car and crossover pricing where it is today, and then you keep truck pricing where it is as well, but just drop truck volumes by, you know, seven or 10%, which would, would not put it below a mid-cycle level, and General Motors no longer generates cash. So if they're not generating cash, the dividend's at risk. They have net debt now when you include the pension deficit. So you know, bankruptcy is not out of the question if you have a down cycle in the pickup truck market and cars and crossovers don't have some offsetting price increase. So it makes it very risky in my mind. And so it's hard in my mind to pay more than, you know, at the beginning of the cycle, it's hard to pay more than six or seven times whatever the annual dividend is if you want to be really safe. And that is sets, I'm setting aside what people may perceive to be upside growth opportunity from auto 2.0, which we can talk about in a little bit. But otherwise, I mean, history has shown over the last 20 or 30 years anyway, since the Asian competitors really entered the U.S. market, that it is a brutally competitive, capital-intensive business, and pricing can erode very quickly, even in the pickup truck market, which it did in 06 and 07. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't personally view the space as um, very interesting or attractive, and uh, I struggle to see how it could be investable unless you thought you could get your money out within just a handful of years to avoid the risk of losing all your capital in a, in a downside scenario. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty clear. 17% dividend yield <laughs> uh, says a lot. So thanks. Yeah. That's great clarity. Daniel, you want to jump in? Well, just quickly, the, it sounds like, I mean, you sort of said, but I just want to underline the difference between GM and the rest of the industry. It sounds like it's just that GM is a little bit worse off because of the, balance sheet management, the reliance on trucks, everything else, right? It's not like, in your view, the whole industry is kind of a tough spot to consider putting money in, right? Well, I've focused my analysis just on the pickup truck makers. And the pickup truck exposure is a positive and and an asset, not a negative. The, the, The reason to call it out is because the car and crossover market's gotten so brutally competitive in North America that 
they're making the lion's share of their money now in pickups. So they disclose the variable contribution margins of each of the segments. And, you know, they make 12 times more money on a truck than they do a car on a variable contribution basis. And they make over three times more money on selling a pickup truck than they do on and on a crossover, like a, a Chevy Traverse or something. So really the, the bulk of all the cash flows come from the pickup truck market. And, and kind of the point on the pickup truck market is, I mean, there's a lot you could go into on it. But if you look at cumulative sales of pickup trucks in the last three years, four years, or five years, as well as how many we're selling today, you know, we are at levels of sales that are the highest they've ever been in the next closest period was in 2005 at the peak of the housing boom. So it's hard to argue there's a lot of room for a whole lot more upside in pickup truck volumes from here. You know, just to throw out some numbers, this year the industry should sell over 2.4 million full-size pickup trucks between the Silverado, the Sierra, the F-Series, Ram, Toyota Tundra, and then Nissan Titan has a little bit going on there. In the downturn in 09, the unit sales dropped as low as 1.1 million from where we are today at 2.4. But even in 2013, 2014, the industry was doing 1.9 to 2 million units. That'd be a 20% drop from here. In 2016, it was 2.24 million. So, I mean, I guess my point is, it's not crazy to say that it's within the realm of possibility, if not probability, in the next two to three years, pickup truck sales could fall 5 or 10%. And then the question from there is, well, if cars and crossovers don't improve and that happens, what happens to General Motors cash flows? And the answer is they go away. They go negative, at least the way I've modeled it. And if any listeners come to a different conclusion, I'm happy to compare notes. And kind of making matters a little bit worse and something where I take issue with the whole oligopoly contention about the pickup truck market, there's kind of three points. One is pricing has fallen apart in the past in this industry, in the pickup truck market, which suggests it's not a strong oligopoly. Secondly, the pricing increases that the pickup truck makers have put on in the last five years uh, is unprecedented in the history of the pickup truck market. So now the spread between the price of your average pickup truck relative to your top 10 selling other vehicles is the widest it's ever been in history. And that's because they've really pushed price and taken advantage of what they view to be their oligopoly position. So in a traditional oligopoly, that would be great and everybody would just behave and maintain volume and production levels and kind of reap the benefits of this price increase. But what we're actually seeing is Ram is now making a market share play and Ram wants to, or Ram did increase the production capacity of the Ram from 500,000 units a year to 600,000 units a year. What's interesting about that is, you know, Ram has been the only big market share gainer in the last 10 years, and all of the share they've stolen has come from General Motors. If you look at 2005, Ford F-150 sold 900,000 units, the Ram did 400,000 units, and the Silverado and Sierra by GM did 940,000 units, give or take. Fast forward to today, the F-150 sales are still at 900. The Rams have gone up 100,000 units to 500,000 units. And you look at to see, well, who did Ram take that market share from? And the answer is General Motors, whose market share or whose unit volumes dropped to 800,000 last year. 
So if Ram's going to take another 100,000 going forward, you know, I think GM's more vulnerable than Ford. And on top of that, the loyalty of these customers is at risk of being tested in a way it hasn't been tested before because of the, you know, the pricing abuse they've done in the last three to four years of really jacking the price up on these pickup trucks. So I, I think it's, it's interesting. And, you know, it's not, a, I don't think it's an oligopoly when you've got a, a player in the three trying to increase their production 20% and steal share and they're using price as a weapon to do so. You know, and then we could get into more detail about how in the last quarter, you know, Ford's F-150 sales were flat year over year. The Ram increased double digits. And, you know, who who gave up the market share? Well, GM did. GM's truck sales in the third quarter fell double digits. Of course, they botched the release of their 2019 truck model due to management missteps. But that's a, another story altogether. Yeah, there's, so, there's a ton in there. Maybe you, you had alluded to Automotive 2.0 earlier. And if we're looking for the great hope of the car industries, it might be there. And so you talked about in your first article, you talked about SoftBank investing in Cruise, a lot of excitement around that investment and the potential that, you know, the auto, the auto, autonomous vehicle industry or the self-driving car or whatever current term it's getting. There's a lot of excitement around that. Is that something that, how, how do you sort of, how do you sort of incorporate that into your viewpoint of what should investors be thinking about with, with this sort of lottery ticket or future potential from crews specifically, AVs and generally, how are you sort of approaching that? I, I think there's two to three different groups of participants in auto 2.0 to kind of talk to and hear their perspectives on. And in, in the case of General Motors, there's kind of, I think, three groups. You've got General Motors corporate management, which would be the senior management of General Motors. And then you've got the the senior management of Cruise itself. And those are, the, so Cruise is kind of a separate entity within GM. GM owns the majority of the equity. And then you've got like the guys on the ground, the engineers that actually work on the project. And, you know, to some degree, venture capitalists, I guess less so, but people that are really close to the day-to-day -day work being done on the autonomous driving. And you know, using GM as an example, I think at GM corporate, you get the most promotional, optimistic outlook of, oh, in 2019, we're going to have this self-driving taxi fleet we're going to unroll. Uh, I'm not sure what senior level cruise people would say, but when I talk to people on the ground that actually work on these projects, whether it's Waymo or Cruise or wherever, you know, most people that are doing the day-to-day -day work think that we are still many years away from having uh, self-driving fleets of cars being able to roam our streets. And by several years away, mo most of them, I, I mean, I hear no, no sooner than five years, and it's really probably something like 10 years. And then I, I, you know, getting into the GM and the Cruise situation, there's just a lot of red flags. You know, they marketed the transaction with SoftBank as an investment that valued Cruz at $11.5 billion. Uh, they, they filed the purchase agreement and the LLC agreement with the second quarter 10Q. And 
SoftBank's investment is really not the way General Motors portrayed it. In fact, SoftBank's investment is a preferred stock deal that pays a coupon, which General Motors does not receive. If anything goes wrong, SoftBank gets all their money out first. It's just a, it's a much more favorable deal for SoftBank than the straight up equity infusion that General Motors kind of painted it as. And I think it's interesting when management teams do things like that. And so I, you take a step back and you say, why would they do that? And yeah, you know, I think it's to distract from, you know, they've had a couple of years in a row now of guidance misses. They were late to fess up to the commodity price pressures. Two of the senior finance guys have left, the CFO and the chief accounting officer. And they, they, they're very late. I don't think it's an industry secret. I don't think the market or investors are as clued into it, or maybe they don't care, but it's no industry secret that GM's rollout of the new pickup truck cycles very much delayed and they had problems and they never really talked about that either. So I think, you know, General Motors is trying to cheerlead around this, this cruise thing as their future and distract from some of the other issues they've been having. But then when you dig into the cruise thing and, yeah, the the guy. My, my sense is that it's still many years away, and without going into a whole lot of detail of you know what specifics my research has uncovered on, on this point, I would just kind of say there's questions that investors should ask as part of their due diligence when looking at crews, and to throw out a handful of them, you know, if I were looking at crews critically. You know, I would ask some things like, you know, what milestone objectives is corporate GM setting for the cruise team to follow? Uh, can these milestones be gamed by the cruise team to give the appearance of progress when in fact little is being made? You know, for example, uh, cruise touts their miles driven and how the miles driven is growing and growing and growing. But if is GM setting miles driven targets and then the cruise team in order to hit them is simply racking up a lot of miles driving the same routes over and over again, while each incremental mile of this same route kind of game they're playing is generating less and less incremental useful data. Uh, another interesting thing, all, these guys do a lot of their Waymo and Cruise and a bunch of others do a lot of their testing in California and the California Department of Motor Vehicles requires them to file annual reports on disengagements and also crash reports. If you read the disengagement reports filed with California's DMV, let's compare just Waymo and Cruise, who are viewed as being the two forefront leaders. Waymo's driven, drives more miles than Cruise, and you can bifurcate miles driven between street and highway. But even on a street level, Waymo drives a little bit more. So Waymo had 63 disengagements last year. Cruise had 105 disengagements or, you know, just over 65% more. You know, fine, whatever. So Cruise had their autopilot disengage more times. But what's interesting is you can look at what was the cause of the disengagement. In the cause of Waymo's disengagements, only one was caused because Waymo thought another driver on the road was driving poorly. In other words, Waymo blamed other drivers' reckless behavior or poor driving for one of their 63 disengagements. When you read Cruz's reports, Cruz says 45 of the 105 disengagements were caused by bad drivers. So I, I, are we really to believe that Cruz is coming across 40 times more bad drivers than Waymo? Or is there, are there other 
issues or questions that need to be further looked into here. So I just have a lot of questions around the that program and cruise the cruise program and you know just how sound and and well run it really is versus putting up a bunch of supposed milestones that show progress when in fact perhaps it's not doing as as well as the headlines would suggest that calls to mind a question for me which is if you just game it out a little further and even assume that gm is on the right track with this new technology I wonder if there there are so many players that we've just mentioned developing this AV technology. Do we end up at the end of the technological revolution in the same spot we are now where everyone just puts this stuff in cars and now cars are just equally competitive at the end of the day? What do you th- what do you think is the sort of industry level impact of the technology over the longer term? Uh, there's two or three different views on that, and I think there's two or three different outcomes. And frankly, the I, I think it's too soon to know, but I'll, I'll give you the optimistic potential and the pessimistic potential. The optimistic potential is that the self-driving taxi fleet can become something like an Uber where the first mover advantage causes all the users in the market to just download the app on their phone and be used to using just that. And so the first move, it makes it very hard to, for a second or third person to come into that market. So it's a, the positive argument for Cruise would be, you know, any market where they can be first, if they can get everybody in those markets to have the apps on their phone and they, it just becomes kind of a habit for them, then Cruise can truly be the dominant player in those markets. That is a potential outcome. I don't think anybody can really refute that to the extent that actually happened. Uh, you know, Uber is very dominant. You know, there's Lyft also, but other than Uber and Lyft, no one else has really made significant inroads into the market of ride hailing. Another, the pessimistic outlook would be that, yes, it is too capital intensive. It's very capital intensive. There's a ton of capital chasing this and there won't be a lot of differentiation. So even if Cruise is first, it's only a matter of time until someone's second. So in that case, it would just get it would be just like the auto industry is today. Pricing power would get eroded away. You just need to spend ever more and more amounts of capital, and the whole thing becomes a disaster. And that's completely possible too. And then, kind of a, a tangent off of that point, which is some—it's a problem that the auto industry faces, and this will kind of rope Tesla into the conversation. But to the extent the electric vehicles are the future, people like to think about you know, Tesla being in the lead there and how big their market share can become, that gets into a unique feature of vehicles. And it's kind of product by product across the the consumer spectrum of things that consumers buy. Uh, But certain products consumers buy, consumers, for whatever reason, like to differentiate themselves from other consumers. And autos are a great example of that. In the auto market, if your neighbor has a Mercedes, for whatever reason, consumers are prone to buy a BMW. And there's other product categories that are like that. You know, I think watches are like that to some degree. But cars suffer from that feature. And I think we'll see that over the next year or two with the case of Tesla is, you know, as these competitors roll out the Jaguar and the Mercedes and the Porsche and whatever, the brand matters. It matters, but 
people like to be different when it comes to their vehicles. And that's a challenge all these guys will face too. Like, obviously that hasn't really impacted the ride hailing market with Uber, but it is a feature currently and historically anyway in the auto market that I think just, you know, adds another layer of difficulty to what is already a very difficult industry. And that is that it's very hard to have a very high market share in the auto space because consumers like to buy something else just for the sheer sake of being different. Right. It's because, yeah, that's really interesting. The consumer choice factor there. It. I wanted to ask about Tesla from another perspective, which is the investing perspective, because I, I wonder how much that, and you could probably throw in Uber and Lyft here too, though they're not as present in our minds, but we all know that Tesla, look, all right, I shouldn't say it that way. Tesla appears to be a very highly valued firm. It's almost as high a market cap as GM, despite having much, and that's after its recent significant sell-off. And so a lot of times people will look and say, oh, if Tesla is worth this, GM must be worth this plus X or Ford must be worth this plus X or whatever else. I'm just wondering if you, in conversations with other investors, especially, or even, you know, people in the industry, like how much does the excitement, the sort of distortion that Tesla may have created throw off people's critical analysis of these other companies because they have that anchor in their mind of, well, Tesla is worth this, or the market says Tesla is worth this, so I can walk that back to my own my own investment, my own confirmation bias. I mean, do you see that at all? Not really, to be honest. I don't view the investor bases as having very much overlap. And I think people kind of put Tesla in its own world and it's in its own little bucket. And I don't, people that I speak to anyway, there don't, doesn't seem to be much look through when looking at more of the traditional automakers and comparing them to Tesla. You know, short sellers will say, geez, how can Tesla be worth X when, you know, actual profitable companies that make a lot of cars are worth, you know, similar to X. Doesn't make any sense to me, blah, blah, blah. But I think Tesla's investor base is much more of a tech slash growth base and the other automakers is more of a value slash dividend slash, you know, industrial shareholder base. So they're, they're just different, I think, different shareholders altogether. Okay. Interesting. Mike, you wanted to ask one more? Yeah, we had a, a getting back to GM specifically, we had a lot of fun on our podcast talking about the management turnover and what's going on in the C-suite. And you mentioned that briefly here, but I just wanted to get your get your take on what's going on there and what what you'd be looking out for going forward in terms of management behavior. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. And I don't think there's any solid way to know exactly what's going on as an outside investor. But, you know, the, I, I think the, the positive spin on the situation would be that they're cleaning up house and it was time to get some fresh faces in there. And then I think the skeptical view would be that you know, usually when you get a new CEO, the whole fresh face thing occurs within the first year or two. And in this case, it's now been several years. And to make it, to put another kind of twist in the plot, it's occurring at a time when there's a lot going wrong and there's a lot of obfuscation occurring. You know, we've had a couple of years in a row now of missed guidance and the, the first quarter round of conference calls, Fiat and Ford both talked about rising commodity costs and General Motors kind of downplayed that. 
And then by the second quarter, GM finally lowered guidance. Um, also, the CFO that's departing is not necessarily at what we call a retirement age, and he was making, you know, mid seven figures a year. So you got to wonder, like, you know, did a 58 year old guy making five to six, seven, eight million dollars a year decide to just walk away on his own, or was he pushed out, or does he have concerns about? you know, folks that he's been working with or what he's been seeing internally. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it just raises a lot of questions. And in my mind, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything's bad. I mean, it's completely possible that it was time to get some fresh faces in there. But when I see this in conjunction with the other strange things that have gone on, it just it just raises the bar that much higher to make it even close to being investable. And something that I think is already far from being investable anyway. Awesome. Great. Uh, I found this conversation to be really informative. Daniel, do you have anything else? I think I'd, I've asked all my questions. No, I, I think that's, 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 that's it for me. I, I have to go back to my drawing board and wonder why I'm still owning Ford shares. But other than that, I guess that's a question for me. But yeah, this this was great. Thank you so much, BP. Really appreciate you sharing the idea originally and then coming on here to kind of dig into it further and, and, and share all the, you know, tons of research that you've done on this space. Great. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Quick halftime note. You can email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with feedback, questions, or suggested guests or topics. I'm excited about the conversation coming up with Phoebe Wall-Howard of the Free Press, and we're always looking for fresh perspectives beyond the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to add to our coverage. We also love hearing from our listeners. So email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com if you want to get in touch. And a quick housekeeping note, we recorded the interview with Blue Pacific on Tuesday, October 16th. Now, let's listen to the conversation we taped Monday, October 22nd with Phoebe Wall-Howard. Welcome to Behind the Idea. We're continuing our look at General Motors. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. I'm alone on this one. Mike Taylor is not on the call, but I'm joined by Phoebe Wall Howard, who is a autos writer for the Detroit Free Press and for the USA Today Network. And she's following the industry closely. And so we wanted to ask her a few things about General Motors and about the other car companies to get a sense of where things are going. So Phoebe, welcome on. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Okay. So... Just to start, uh, what what's the mood right now in? I'm, I'm going to use Detroit as shorthand. What's the mood in Detroit? What's in the what's the mood in the auto industry right now? Where where do people in the industry, the companies, what are they thinking about where the industry is headed? This is a time of incredible. It's dynamic change. So we're talking about huge money being at stake. Uh, people are changing the companies, launching all new designs and partnering up in ways that haven't been seen in quite some time. So tech companies are partnering up with traditional manufacturing companies uh, with greater frequency every single day. We know that deals are being announced regularly, and we know deals privately are in the works from the West Coast to the East Coast and all over America. So this is a time that um, the industry is optimistic. Uh, the analysts I talk to who follow very, very closely are cautious uh, because they don't know what's going to happen with the economy. We know that some of the automakers are restructuring, and uh, and we know there's an expected cyclical downturn 
in the auto industry and spending. Uh, you know, so so that's something people are a little bit bracing themselves for. Are the are people in the companies themselves? You said the analysts specifically are people in the companies themselves bracing for that? Is there a sense that we really need to watch out for for the next few years? Yeah, it's an interesting. You know, everyone's watching the economy. Manufacturing decisions are being made. For example, closer than ever. All the auto companies, uh, domestic and foreign, are watching their production. They're limiting and controlling uh, how much product is out and available so that the prices, you know, don't drop. There is tremendous control and awareness. And because analytics and and all the things available today, uh, the companies can more closely control uh, when to pull down a plant, when to reduce hours, when to produce fewer. But right now, uh, it's a very strange juxtaposition because very high profit products, big trucks, big SUVs uh, are greatest in demand. And so the industry is in a strange situation, a lot of money at stake, a lot of optimism, uh, but watching the economy carefully. So one of the things from our first discussion on uh, GM was about the reliance that the company has on pickup trucks and and sort of the companies that have exposure to pickup trucks in general, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler, and then obviously it goes wider. But how dependent is GM on that and these other companies? How dependent are they on that? And how is is that viewed as sort of a benefit because they can just milk that? Or is there concern that that might turn to more competition? Like what's the what's the state of the pickup truck landscape specifically? A couple things. One, General Motors is widely viewed in the industry as a leader in terms of driverless technology. It is very confident, very comfortable, and very accomplished in terms of the inroads in that arena and the new mobility market. So that is something I think most people would concede, and it's a general assumption. Now, when you talk about trucking and you talk about the truck products, uh, Ford has been the dominant player uh, for more than three decades in terms of, I always like to remind people that the F-Series for Ford is its own Fortune 500 company. So the truck component of Ford Motor Company is its own Fortune 500 company. Then you've got Fiat Chrysler that has said the Ram truck is its top priority and Jeeps, and they are going after that money. We're talking about $100,000 pickups, that that is not uncommon now. 50 on average, 90,000 and 100,000 typically. So that is, we're talking, the companies are making a profit margin per vehicle that is just unprecedented. Therefore, all the auto companies, right now, Honda and Toyota, are very clearly leader, leaders in the sedans. They're trusted. That's going nowhere because they really, um, they really own that market. Then you have the other companies like the Detroit Three moving in and expanding what they would say is the large silhouette. They, they're moving away from sedans and just bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, you look at some of these vehicles, whether it's the Silverado, whether it's the Ram, um, you have situations where they literally cannot sate the appetite of the consumers right now. They cannot build these trucks fast enough. People are working overtime. They're working on weekends. Um, the assembly line workers on trucks 
in America in particular, North America and America in particular, this is where the money is made. And this is what funds driverless vehicle technology. This is a pipeline of cash that the automakers, including General Motors, must have. It's required. That's so... I want to follow up there on on two different lines. First, on the pickup side, is there a sense that if Fiat Chrysler is building up the RAM and trying to go after that category further, is there any fear or sense that there might be starting to competition, increased competition in that space, which then threatens the profit margins and everything else? Is there any sort of are people thinking two or three steps beyond where we are now, or is it more we see, like you said, that demand is so strong that we're going to just keep build, building as much as we can? At the moment, we're not. There doesn't appear to be an indication of a slowdown. So, for example, IHS market noted in 2017 that Ford had 35 percent of full side pickups. Uh, GM had 27%, and then FCA had 24%. It's very tight in the U.S., and again, this is the big money. At this point, it doesn't appear to be a limited pie. It's growing because people are changing how they're living. Uh, they want more stuff. They want uh, more activity. I mean, I could not believe. I just came back from Las Vegas, and I was looking at trucks where people are now using trucks with camping equipment from Yakima. It is a massive pivot where you're using your truck to go to work, to take your kids to soccer. Nobody was ever using these large vehicles that way, but they are now. And part of it is because they're more fuel efficient for all the automakers. And um, they're moving toward new technology that makes it uh, last longer. These, these are really everlasting vehicles. It's hard to believe. So I would say it's all the automakers are in, I'm not sure the position Fiat Chrysler and General Motors are really battling strong with their products, Silverado and Ram. And uh, and then the mid-sized truck market is is very, very large and growing. I mean, 18% growth over the last year. That's crazy. And so this is this is where the money is, and this is where the smart money is. Sorry to kind of keep going there a little bit. How do you view is... GM, let's focus on GM specifically. How are they doing mm-hmm. as compared to, are they able to hold their own? Are they able to maintain or even grow market share? Are you seeing them, because the previous person we spoke to cited the, um, the RAM specifically as coming out really strong, if, if I'm remembering right, the RAM specifically as being a big sort of threat to GM's market share. Is that something that you're seeing play out or how is that? How are the the big pickup truck makers doing versus versus each other? Uh, I think that the the battle right now is very much between General Motors and Fiat Chrysler, and you General Motors is playing strong. So in and you know it it was strong in 2017, and in by the same time you know through August of this year, uh, the Silverado, for example, is holding a strong second, but What's amazing is Ford owns, you know, it's 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 more than a hundred thousand unit lead, but GM and Fiat Chrysler are, you know, they're to be perfectly blunt, they're like fewer than forty thousand differential. You know, so when you're selling, 
you know, more than half a million for Ford, GM and Fiat Chrysler are both in the 300,000 range, 363 for GM, 327 for Fiat Chrysler. So the fight is really between General Motors and Fiat Chrysler and people, you know, General Motors is watching their direct competitor has a new head, has a new CEO who has said, this is his top priority. He came out of RAM and he is doing everything he can to take down the competition. And in this moment, GM is number two and Fiat Chrysler has put a target on GM. Whether or not they can make that happen, uh, General Motors has a very loyal constituency and getting people to change trucks is difficult. But, uh, you know, Fiat Chrysler has said they, they plan to move into the number two position. Okay. And uh, we'll see what happens. Okay, that's really that's that's fun to hear that there there's you know sort of a calling out of stakes. That's really kind of it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, the so the other way I wanted to go there is you talked about the driverless technology. You talked about GM's lead, which I presume is from the cruise division and the sort of that unit of the company. And what are you? Um, Everybody, I think, I, I don't, I actually don't know what Fiat Chrysler is doing there, but it seems like everybody is trying to make a play one way or the other, whether it's, like you said, partnering with tech companies, developing their own. What is, what is GM doing specifically with Cruise that gives them an edge from what you're seeing? And also, what's, given that, like, what does that mean for the business itself? Is this still something that, is a long way away. What are you hearing as far as when this actually starts to translate into something that will show up on revenues, will show up on profits or anything else? Well, I think Mary Barra has been clear that obviously this is her top priority. And again, whether it's publicly or privately, every industry, whether it's a specific car company or an analyst, uh, people really see General Motors as the leader. So if it's going to happen, General Motors will make it happen first. I don't want to diminish or suggest that the other automakers, domestic and foreign, aren't doing great things. But General Motors is widely perceived to be the organic brains behind these developments, meaning you have really savvy partnerships with other automakers doing good deals, smart deals, and looking to buy, to acquire the technology and move into the space. Uh, I think generally people look at General Motors saying, this is a company that's going to set a pace uh, because they're doing so much in-house and their engineers, the engineers that I've interviewed, they work around the clock the way that Microsoft did in the beginning. Back in the day, Microsoft was known where engineers kept cots in the office and it was internally competitive and that's where they wanted to be. They were working around the clock. They were working to get to market first. The engineers that I've interviewed at General Motors will say they get up at three o'clock in the morning. They get up to take notes, to do designs. It is a 24-7 process and that's what they do with their teams. One of the engineers at General Motors is is a high-intensity athlete who, in order, it's so around the clock and high pressure that he does surfing and paddleboarding in the dead of winter in Michigan on the water, covered. I mean, he he does extreme sports 
just to decompress. And that's what these engineers are doing because what they are doing is so intense and profound. And that's what you hear at the General Motors level. You hear it privately. You see it when you go to these competitions. You look around and say, who are these competitors? And these are the people. That is the level of intensity. Wait, can I just pause to what? I don't know if this is giving away a secret, but where in Michigan in the middle of winter would somebody go surfing or paddleboarding? What, what? Oh my God! On the you can do it on the west coast of Michigan, but it's a it's very it's becoming very very popular uh, with paddleboarders where you go out and you are you are head to toe in a wetsuit that is so thick you can only see the eyeballs. I mean you are covered from head to toe and you go out. They walk through. One of the engineers I interviewed parked his. Um, I mean it was a the project he was working on for the company. He parked the vehicle. He carried his board through the snow. He met a team and they went out into the water. I mean, it's ice and snow and they climb over it to go and do these kinds of sports just to clear their minds. I mean, the men and women on the engineering teams, the, the stress that they describe, yet the passion. So they talk about the stress, but they're not, um, they talk about it loving it and what more. I mean, that's a very rare thing at that level of stress. And that's what you see. These are the, these are the teams that were first to market for General Motors previously. So they have, unlike Tesla, that has so much brilliance and so many talented engineers, they also have a lot of turnover. And what General Motors doesn't have is turnover. And so they have this incredible institutional knowledge, and that's what they're building on, and that's what everyone is watching with General Motors. Others are doing incredible things internally and externally. They're buying talent. They're recruiting talent, the Detroit Three and others. But General Motors is, is really considered uh, the player to watch in that space. They're doing great things in China, uh, highly respected in this, and in California. You know, you go to the malls up and down California, and, uh, you know, it's General Motors products that are being charged, and Tesla. That's what you're saying. Okay. Uh, I just, yeah, that, that's that's fascinating as a culture thing. It's also fascinating because I uh, Lake Michigan in the summer is not very warm, and I can just imagine how freezing it must be at, at that time of year. Obviously, yeah. No, it's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, they I I actually and um no, I we our story was that's what motivated the story on the engineer that I did because I could not believe what I was seeing and he wasn't the only one to do that. But it it's it's Lake Michigan is one and then there are um, you know, off Lake Huron is another, but really it's the Great Lakes and they are freezing and those waves are huge. Uh but it is it is a growing sport and engineers are the athletes right now in, from Michigan in particular, but they're traveling all over the country and internationally developing this stuff. But that's the level of intensity that's happening here. So, so on the flip side, are you also seeing, you know, it seems like all the big tech companies are chasing some form of driving technology, obviously Uber and Lyft, but then also you have uh, Google with Waymo, you have Apple, mm -hmm. Are they making themselves known in Detroit? Are they part of the ecosystem there? Or is they, are, are they still more of a California story where they're testing self-driving or whatever else? Do you, do you see the crossover a lot in Michigan? 
so what you have is I think you have tremendous respect both from Silicon Valley, you know, and the relationship between Silicon Valley and the Motor City is far more integrated than the general public realizes and maybe even much of the investor community. So the frequent flyer miles between the two is astonished me when I when I moved from Silicon Valley to the Motor City, I had no idea uh, the level of partnership. So all the companies you just mentioned, uh, very top of mind uh, here in the Midwest and in this cutting edge technology. However, um, the public, the buying public at this point has almost no interest in what we would call mobility coverage, electrification. Uh, that is an issue that is very sexy on the West Coast and perhaps a little bit on the East Coast, maybe in the Manhattan area. But the rest of the country, um, and maybe in college towns, we definitely see that all over America. But otherwise, people really are not paying attention to the driverless technology as much because, frankly, uh, they love their cars and they want to be in their cars, and they sort of view it as a threat. Where we see interest is in areas that Ford has touted and others like medical transportation. You want your mom or your sister uh, or your grandma to go to the doctor. How do you get her there? And um, and that's where you have some interest. So what? Because there, there's we could spend a lot of time talking about all the different change. You call it dynamic change in the industry. I mean, there's there's electric cars. There's there's the like you were talking about aut- autonomous vehicles. There's ride-sharing, connected cars that are going to have more, um, that are just wired, that are part of the Internet of Things or however you want to frame it. But what is most exciting right now for the sort of legacy car companies to work on? Is it the, is autonomous vehicles where you're talking about with GM and with the engineer's passion, is that is that the main story that people are excited about in the industry or are they also kind of buzzing about some of these other opportunities or changes that are coming to the industry as a whole? Well, you, I think you have short-term and long-term gratification. So the industry right now is, the industry is very, very interested in the electrification movement. Um, you have to be because that's what China and California want. And that's where you can't ignore those markets. I have hate mail all the time from people who say, you know, let's just exclude China and who cares about California. Those are huge markets. You're forfeiting too much money. So with those as priorities, they have to be priorities for the company and therefore the companies must be excited. Now, regular people and consumers uh, and therefore the companies are super excited in the short term about the money and the products that the smart vehicles. People love the idea of driving and ordering things at Starbucks and having it ready when you get there from your car. They love having the car connected to everything. It has now become really an extension of your home uh, as much as driving down the road. It is it is simply incredible how excited people are and what they want and how they talk about it. So one dealer I talked with this past week said um, he took in a whole bunch of Range Rovers and some other uh, foreign dealer products because their technology was so bad that he actually, he was a Detroit 3 uh, dealer, and he had to set up a small used car business in the short term because he took in so many vehicles because people were complaining about the technology. 
They weren't complaining about the drive. They weren't complaining about the handling. They weren't complaining about the design, exterior, interior. They were complaining about the technology. And so those are high priorities uh, for a lot of the companies, and that's what everyone's excited about. It's having a great car, but having all the connected qualities as well. On the okay, so what about as do they view any of these technologies as a threat? And I guess the two things that I'm sort of concretely thinking about, and I don't know if this is something the public or we misperceive in the investor community, or if that's if this goes along with what um, the reality. But for example, Tesla, to me, it sometimes seems like Tesla is an antagonist to the legacy companies. I think there's, whether it's just because of Elon Musk or whatever else, Tesla sort of seems to be considered as some somehow playing by a different set of rules. And the other, when you mentioned that technology, I can't remember, but I think it's something that's said by CEOs in the industry or by um, management in the industry, the idea of the handset problem, the idea that at some point the technology is really just going to be developed by tech companies and that kind of commodifies the cars to some degree is that so I'm, I don't want to lead to those two points but are there do, does do any of these technologies stand out as a threat to the legacy companies do, do they worry about these or is there more of an outlook of oh this is an opportunity we're excited about what we can do for the consumer no, you nail a really, really important point, and I'm so grateful that you raised this issue. And this is the thing. The, what you refer to as legacy companies, that is the traditional manufacturing, I would respectfully submit they are going through a transformation. All of them are going through a transformation that in some ways people, many people find Tesla annoying because they feel like Tesla uh, is not held accountable for claims and when they fall behind on schedules and production and have various technology challenges, uh, they get a pass and their stock price rises. So mm-hmm. that's just annoying to your traditional manufacturer. Having said that, publicly or privately, every manufacturer will say they love that Tesla has transformed how um, the world thinks about cars and what's possible, and that the car companies themselves, the traditional, have been making inroads in these spaces in different ways, and that it is Tesla that has opened everyone's minds to what's possible, and the market, and the investment, and the enthusiasm. So it is a different set of rules. I mean, when I tell people an F-150 rolls off the line every 52 seconds, An F-150 pickup rolls off the line every 52 seconds, yet Tesla struggles with a waiting list for its vehicles. That's where people go crazy. That when you see the volume of vehicles that's produced versus the handful, uh, and that can be very, very frustrating to people. But at the end of the day, there will be much more collaboration. And it is the tech companies and the traditional auto companies that are coming together today in a way that no one really ever forecasted. Tesla seems to make a lot of people on all sides, whether they're favorable for Tesla or against Tesla, uh, makes them a little bit annoyed and crazy, I think. And so it's, it's funny to hear that that's also playing out in the industry because we, we seem to be f- full of passion 
on our site, to put it politely, for what's going on with Tesla. Oh, no, I think there's no question, yes, that it's valid. I think that, you know, Elon Musk has a unique ability to inspire passion on all fronts and anger and irritation. But it is just you do have traditional companies, manufacturers who look at Tesla and say, you know, this is somebody you've got to marry brilliant ideas with the ability to execute. And um, and that's where the industry really looks at Tesla and says, you have great ideas, and that's beautiful and fantastic. But if we conducted ourselves the way Tesla did, uh, our, you know, our stockholders would revolt. And um, yet they're, the value just doesn't compare. You know, Tesla's off the charts. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So maybe just as a, as a last question here and kind of to, kind of to circle back also a little bit to where we started and sort, sort of asking about the industry where we're at a point in the cycle where potential, there's a potential downturn. The last downturn obviously didn't go very well for the industry with Fiat Chrysler, Ford as well, GM most obviously. What has, what, what has the industry learned or what what is going to should we get into the next downturn what will kind of keep those companies doing okay or what will they what have they not learned what what sort of has anything changed from 2006 to 2009 or or are we kind of prepared should we be cautious about the potential for a round 2 of of the the past cycle Industry folks would say uh, privately that, you know, you have to be careful about optimism, uh, you know, morphing into arrogance. That is a concern with this expected cyclical downturn. Having said that, uh, the last reorganization and great recession here uh, scared everybody in unprecedented ways. So they, the companies absolutely tightened up, revamped, shut down projects. And now, frankly, the tariff dialogue, there is, it is an ongoing daily analysis of profit loss and how products are performing, where they're performing. And frankly, these companies are changing how they're evaluating outcomes and money, meaning uh, rather than look at everything as one big piece and how are we performing at the end of the day, they're looking at individual products and where the weak links are. And that's where you have big conversations in the industry about cutting out things like sedans. People may love a certain vehicle, but if it cannot self-sustain, it is getting cut from the line. And these are harsh realities. They're making, the industry is making decisions on forfeiting certain market share for the big picture. So there are definitely lessons learned. Uh, it is all these years later, 10 years later, and every single day there are references to the Great Recession and decisions that are being made and lessons learned. It is a top-of-mind situation that is being addressed in real time every day. Okay. It'll be, obviously, it'll, it'll be sort of a proof is in the pudding as we get through to the next cycle and see how things go, but obviously... I mean, it sort of didn't occur to me until we really dug in here, but it's just, 
so much is going on right now because you have that cyclical aspect, but then the other sort of big things that we were talking about with the technologies and then just the sort of day-to-day fighting for market share and the pickup trucks or whatever else. And so it just seems like you have to keep your head on a swivel right now in the industry to just stay on top of everything that's going on. Yeah, one th- a couple of things to remember. It, the, the lingo that is consistently heard is these big pickups are funding technology. When you look at it like that, it is the daily money coming in uh, that feeds the beast. So that is a near-term, long-term strategy. And then secondly, you've got the an assembly line worker told me something really surprising this week. Um, he said, when the last downturn happened, we lost sales in the cheap vehicles. We didn't lose sales of expensive vehicles. And I found that really counterintuitive. And he said it surprised all of us as workers, but the people who built trucks had safe jobs. And those of us who built smaller vehicles for people on a budget, we were laid off. So when I talk about um, a Lincoln Navigator, a $100,000 vehicle, and I get calls from all over the country, my favorite being the guy in Florida who'd been on a waiting list, paid all his money up front and said, I will do anything to get my vehicle. And I had dozens of calls like that. I will give you $100,000 and I will wait for months. And then he called me and said, it was worth the wait. And I have those people are on waiting lists and they're rationing the vehicles to dealers around the country. That is just one example. Huge profit margins and the profit margins are increasing. So it's tens of thousands of dollars per vehicle. Um, and that's something, again, that's just a funding stream and um, like we haven't seen, but uh, something to watch. Wow. That's, yeah, I, I think the way, that's the other thing too, is the way people feel about their cars is such an important, uh, it's a sort of visceral thing in the way that, um, you know, Procter and Gamble or a consumer goods company, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate Maybe that's not the best example, but it doesn't seem to resonate quite as much as a car in a person's life. Well, let me let me share this one. This is a weird anecdote. I spoke to a woman, a professional uh, white collar, and she has a truck. And I said, tell me about why you drive this vehicle. And she said, it makes me feel safe. And I said, it makes you feel safe like if you get in a car accident, you'll walk away unscathed. And she said, no, it makes me feel safe. Because we live in uncertain times, we don't know about public safety, we don't know what the future holds, and this is an env- it's like a bunker. I feel like if I had to go away or I had to be safe for myself or my family, I could be in this vehicle and it provides me safety, like a home. And that was the strangest thing. And she was, and she she had really thought this out and said. You know, other women that she spoke to said the same thing. It was a physical safety apart from being on the road, uh, a, a protection issue in these uncertain times. So there are some factors out there that, that are being studied right now. Uh, the one thing you hadn't mentioned that I wanted to touch on is General Motors has gathered some incredible data that the company went out, of course, and sought permission from its drivers to participate, and they had thousands of responses. Uh, from, I think, Chicago and Los Angeles. And that was people who allowed uh, their data to be gathered and studied by General Motors in terms of where are they driving, how are they 
you know, what are their, their habits? And people really want, they like that because they then want assistance with their vehicle uh, that uses that data to do what they perceive is make their lives easier. So again, General Motors is very public about potentially monetizing data and being very careful. Toyota has been very public about saying, we absolutely won't go there. That's a very interesting position. We will not gather data on our drivers. That has been the recent um, very clear position to date. Uh, meanwhile, General Motors has been very public about seeking cooperation and being very careful about permission, uh, as best we can tell, that um, this is about monetizing data. Other auto companies want to do that as well. Much the way Facebook, you know, you don't make money early on, but you then offer data strengths in other ways. That's where these car companies are going, new revenue streams that people haven't even anticipated. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, with the car being such a part of our identity and if you're, if you drive regularly a part of your life, it makes sense that you would want to take advantage of that and as from the company perspective to try to build on that value. So that's really interesting. Okay. Well, this was, this was really, this was really fantastic. Thank you so much, Phoebe, for taking the time to speak with me today. And I'm looking forward to seeing you know, how this plays out in the industry and where, where these companies go, because I think it's, it's, uh, the car, car companies are always sort of a touchstone in the economy and everything else. But with what we have right now, I think it's going to be a interesting cycle or interesting few years ahead of us. What we're seeing is unprecedented engagement with readers and viewers on this topic. So cars and auto and mobility have always been strong, but what we're seeing um, now is is numbers that we've never seen before in terms of media and consumption. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's playing out just across the board. That's really... Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Phoebe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com if you have any feedback for us or any requests. We're following up on our Canopy Growth Podcast next week and then launching into a four-part review of Amazon, so stay tuned. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Ideas.